Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jonathan Abrams, former writer for Grantland, the LA Times, the New York Times, excellent feature writer who just wrote his first book. It is Boys Among Men, How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and Sparked a Basketball Revolution, and as the title says, it focuses on the guys who went straight from high school to the NBA. I was fortunate enough to get an early copy of it, so that allowed me to ask questions about the book itself. For some of you, because we do talk in some substance about what's in it, if you want to be more surprised by it like I was, feel free to do that. But I think it's a wonderful conversation that you can either pair it with that or whatever you'd like to do. It runs about a half an hour, and it was so much fun to have him on. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. So, of course, you've worked on a lot of projects over the years, and I thought a good place to start was really what the inspiration for this and how this book came together. So at Grantland, I had done a few profiles on uh, guys who had made the jump from high school, and it just seemed to me like guys like Sean Livingston and Gerald Green, even if they were just pretty much what you would consider average NBA players, their path toward NBA stability seemed to be more arduous than other guys who had gone to college. So that kind of gave me an idea. I mean, Gerald Green, for example, had to go all the way and play in Siberia before he was able to uh, find NBA stability and, and mature as a, as a player and a person. And then also, uh, I was a senior in high school in 2001, and I've been a basketball fan for a long time. So that was a draft that Eddie Curry, Kwame Brown, and Tyson Chandler were taking within the first four picks. And uh, so I was following them in real time, and you know, I was at that age and thinking in my head, like, geez, that has to be a whole lot of pressure, but these guys were expected and projected to be superstars in the NBA. So you fast forward more than a decade later, and none of them had really reached their ceiling. So the combination of those two things, I wanted to try and explore how and why, and that's how the idea came about. And I like that you really did start at the beginning, and I thought that the specifically the part with Moses Malone did do a nice job of setting the table. Was that kind of part of the plan originally? Uh, it was. It, I was uh, trying to think of the best way to get into it, and that just seemed to 
make the most sense to me. And it, it was also kind of like a precursor, right? Because if you look at it, uh, three guys made the jump in the mid-'70s, and then nobody did it again with Kevin Garnett. But in the mid-'70s, it was almost like a little appetizer of what was to come because uh, Moses Malone was a superstar. Daryl Dawkins was a guy who had a, probably an average career and probably could have done better if he would have better been able to tap into his potential. And Bill Willoughby was kind of a, a cautionary child that kind of scared a lot of teams off for a while. So it was almost like the good, the bad, and the ugly of what was to come into the NBA two decades later. And something that struck me reading it, especially because he's still in the league, is how it really did work out well that Garnett was kind of the standard bearer for this generation of high school to pro guys. Yeah, he was uh, really unique and really a guy before his time, I think. He was a guy who recognized that if he had gone to college, uh, that the colleges would be the, the one to profit and not him. And he was able to, to see that and, and make that jump. And even though he was kind of the, the trailblazer who opened up doors for a lot of other guys to trail in his footsteps, he, he didn't want to be. And he cautioned against it because he realized how tough and difficult that transition uh, was better than anybody. And that transition is something that, it, it, from from your book and just from my own experience covering the league, it, it seems like that transition is hard for everybody, but doing it as a teenager is a whole different thing than what even what guy, most guys are doing now. Yeah, I mean, you think about your life in high school, and your life is pretty pretty regimented. You, look, you go to classes, you have a bell that you follow usually, and you go to classes all day, and then you go to practice for a couple hours, and you do homework, and then do it again the next day. Then you get to the NBA, and probably for the first time in a lot of these guys' lives, they have money for the first time. Some some of them, it was their first time opening up a bank account, and you practice for only a couple hours in the day. So if you're not mentally prepared and ready for that, that's a recipe and a combination to get into a lot of trouble if your life drifts in that direction. Yeah, and you have to balance things differently because when you're in school or, you know, whatever you do beforehand, your life is in, kind of imbalanced by the structure. Even if you don't, you know, the kids who didn't care about their classes, they generally still had to go. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of free time when you're a professional, but some people use that to their advantage and know that, you know, being a professional is about more and getting there early. I can't remember what player it was, but they talked about the expectation, you know, that was one of the vets was telling him the expectation is, you know, to get here an hour early and to, to get to get your work in. And that part of it is is hard to know, especially because a lot of the guys who made that jump, with Kobe being a notable exception, didn't really have like a role model in in their family. You know, it wasn't like they they knew exactly what they were getting into. Yeah, so I think that was one of the big common characteristics between the guys who who were able to make it. Guys like KG and LeBron and Kobe saw getting to the NBA as the first step in a journey. It was, hey, I still have a lot of work to do on my craft. All this extra time I have, I can dedicate it to, to getting better. And I'm very, very laser-focused on doing this, and I want to be the best at my craft. Where some guys who, who weren't fortunate enough to, to really make an impression in the league saw getting to the NBA as their arrival, that they made it, and there's more of this to come, and that now life is good, life is grand, and uh, I'm set up for life when that wasn't the case at all. And that's also a huge change that you see with any, basically anybody that gets into the NBA is the idea that how you succeed is entirely different because almost every guy who makes it that far was the, you know, the best player in their area, probably the best in their county when they were playing and they were bigger and stronger and faster than everybody else. And how you succeed in the NBA 
is through that, of course, but also with skill, because the people around you, the, the surrounding talent and the opposing talent are ratcheted up so many degrees that you have to, in a lot of ways, it's a completely different sport. Yeah, without a doubt. But I didn't talk about this in the book at all, but that just brings up a story of when I was in summer league last year and I was doing a story on all the Kentucky players who, who made the jump. And I think it was either six or seven guys had declared early. And I think everyone but one of them had gotten drafted. But I was talking to uh, to Devin Booker and the Suns, and he said that one of the reasons why he had gone to Kentucky for that one year and not gone to a school where he could have been the main focus on the team was that because it wasn't it, – it, that it would more closely replicate the NBA and what he's going to be going into the following season. So I, I think that's smart for these Kentucky guys to kind of use that to, to get into an NBA mindset as soon as possible. Wow, that's incredible to hear from a guy who was as young as he was to make that decision with that kind of understanding and knowledge of what he would be. I think that kind of gives me an indication of where he's going because most guys can't think long game like that when they're 17, 18. Yeah, well, I, I think his dad played in the NBA for a little while, so he probably had some good guidance from that standpoint. But, yeah, to have that type of foresight was really remarkable to me. Yeah, and I, I think that most guys have trouble with the idea, and it's it's something that isn't surprising with even the, we talked about the idea of, you know, the people around you getting better, with being the, almost every player who made the high school jump, let's say, was the primary, the alpha and the omega with their high school team, and only 30 guys maximum can be that in the NBA, and that's a big adjustment, too, from an ego perspective. Yeah, and you really have to put your your ego in check but just a counterpoint for that, uh, one of the anecdotes that I got from Dale Harris, who was Kobe's rookie coach, was that Kobe came into the league with that mentality. And, you know, that was when the Lakers had just gotten Shaquille O'Neal, and Kobe was trying to tell Dale Harris that Shaq needs to get out of the post so Kobe can have room to operate. And Kobe, he, had just, he was 17 when he was drafted. He had just turned 18 when the season started. So that mindset in that individual case, helped him and it helped him get better faster because Del Harris had told Kobe that he wasn't going to give him a starting spot by a split decision. Like he had to knock somebody out of that spot and Kobe just took that as a challenge and was able to eventually do that. Yeah, you you can thrive with that. And if you have Kobe's level of talent, I, I, I firmly believe that that mentality helped him maximize his physical gifts, which I think he you could argue he came probably the closest to of any of the high school guys just because of what he became in his remarkable career. Yeah, and I think, you know, I look at a guy like him and a guy like, uh, in this whole thing, I think LeBron is the biggest outlier because even a guy like Kobe and, and Kevin Garnett and Tracy McGrady, it took them a while to get acclimated. And I don't think anybody was ready to jump from high school like quite like LeBron, to me, it's still amazing that he was able to do what he did. What do you attribute that to mentally? Because, of course, he was physically developed as a younger guy, which is remarkable. But mentally, he wasn't somebody, from what I from what I recall from the book and from my own knowledge, that really had that structure. You know, it wasn't like he had Del Curry or he had, you know, um, Devin Booker's dad played in the NBA. He didn't have that kind of structure, but he was just ready. Is that a mentality thing? Yeah, I think it's just really, really mentally strong and, and mature beyond his his age. And I think he got into a little bit of controversy at the high school with the, the Hummer that he was driving around and accepting those jerseys. And they were, you know, if you look at it now, it's really, really small in the grand scheme of things. But I think he he was able to catch whiff of, of how the public would see him 
if he dipped in the controversy, and I think he stayed away from it for the most part since. And that he's been able to do that is just remarkable because he's he's had so much pressure on him since he was 16, 17, being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, having his game nationally televised by ESPN, and you know, pretty much ever since high school, he's he's been pretty clean, save for the decision where his reputation took a bit of a hit. But other than that, it's been remarkable to watch. And he's one of the only guys that completely delivered on the hype. I mean, there's no way that you could really argue that he didn't. And that's a combination of a lot of things. But I think the mentality and the, the way that he's approached both the sport and dealing with everybody in it is a big part of that. Yeah, and, and I agree. And he came into the league with a good knowledge of the game's history and the people who had came before him. And he, I think he had a, a good idea of what he wanted to do and what he wanted to accomplish with his time in the league. A quick break from the conversation with Jonathan Abrams to tell you about the inaugural sponsor of the Real Jam Radio podcast, which is SeatGeek, my go-to for buying and selling tickets, including if you wanted to go see any of these preps to pro guys that are still in the league, like LeBron or the Kobe Bryant farewell tour. SeatGeek is a great way to do that because it is an aggregator, so you don't have to worry about missing out on tickets that are listed somewhere and because you can compare prices to apples to apples because they put the fees in first. You don't have to be surprised by that. You don't get blindsided. And also, since Seeky gives a deal score, you can see whether whether those tickets are a good deal or bad deal. It helps inform your decision, and it also informs sellers so that it can help sellers' decisions, whether that's you or whether that's the person that you're trying to buy tickets from. On top of that, listeners to this podcast who get there through Real GM can get a $20 discount rebate on their first purchase. So how that works is you download the free SeatGeek app, you go to the settings tab, and you click add a promo code. The promo code is REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, all caps, no spaces. Then when you make your first purchase, SeatGeek will send you $20. So you get to use this great product, and you get a reward, and you get to support the podcast because they'll know that you're coming from us. That makes it a rare win-win-win. You get the discount, SeatGeek gets another person to use their great product, and you get to show your support for the podcast. So you can do that, and now we'll get on to the conversation. So one of the things that that struck me in the book, just because it felt like a moment in time that is so long past, was your discussion of Kobe's amazing workouts and his time that in that summer, basically before he got drafted. And so I think like we could summarize that, but also just, do you think that something like that could happen now? And a player who did that well could fall like he did in the draft. Oh my gosh, there's no way that could happen in this day and age. I mean, that'd be like thinking, like, could it happen with Ben Simmons? Could Ben Simmons fall all the way to 13th? In this day and age, we know we know about these guys for forever. Like, I feel like I've known about Ben Simmons for years now, and I felt the same way with, with Jalil Okafor. There are just so many twists and turns to happen in gamesmanship for, for Kobe to drop that far in the draft to where... I think each team, each of the 12 teams before that have contemplated taking him, but for one reason or another, whether it was Kobe's agent bluffing or Kobe refusing to work out for that team or Kobe's dad, Jellybean Bryant, pleading with that team executive not to take him. Or, I mean, he worked out three times for the Nets. The Nets, for all intents and purposes, should have taken him. I mean, he should be retiring as a Brooklyn Net right now, but just fate and circumstance allowed him to be drafted 13th overall, and then he had never worked out for the Hornets. Their GM at the time, Bob Bass, had never uh, wasn't too keen on high school kids, so he was pretty eager to get a proven big and bloody Divock, and, and that trade happened. And I think the Phoenix Suns, I want to say, drafted 
either right after that or, or 15th, and they were really high on Kobe, too. And Danny Ainge was their GM at the time, and he swears they would have taken Kobe. But with Kobe off the board, they ended up drafting Steve Nash. It worked out. Yeah, that draft class was incredible. And, yeah, part of what I was getting at was that, and also that what you chronicle in the book is amazing about Kobe, partially because of his dad, is that he had these connections in the NBA world, and there were all these people that believed in him, but he still fell to 13th, and that also feels weird now, but it's just that the people who were fighting for him weren't the final decision makers. Yeah, so Tony DeLeo, who was like, I think at the time he was a 76er scout, but he he had since gone on to be like their assistant GM and he was their coach at one time. He was working Kobe out before the draft, getting him ready at the request of uh, Jelly Bean Bryant. And so he was really advocating for the 76ers to draft Kobe with the number one overall pick. But instead the 76ers took Iverson and, you know, the organization is forever linked with Iverson now, but it would have been interesting had they, uh, drafted Kobe and really went out on a limb. And even when you think about how far he fell, that it what's surprising to me is that nobody was able to jump ahead of where Jerry West ended up making the Vlade deal because you have, let's say, five teams that really wanted him. If they wanted him enough, it's not like those other teams, they were kind of affirmatively not taking Kobe, that they that they weren't able to get a deal done. But of course, as we know from last season, it can be hard, especially on draft day, to make that sort of a move up happen. Yeah. And, you know, at that point in time, the, the executives weren't ready to, to bet their careers and stakes on these high school kids. You know, I think the perfect example is the Timberwolves had a chance to, to take Kobe Bryant a year after drafting Kevin Garnett. Uh, they had, I want to say, the fourth or fifth pick in the draft, and they ended up taking Stephon Marbury, who had only spent uh, one year at Georgia Tech, but they decided that they, wanted, they didn't want to tip fate twice. So they even they passed up on him, and they had recent success drafting a high school kid. Yeah, and that leads me into one of the more interesting things that I had forgotten about in the story was how Garnett's contract alienated him from Marbury and kind of to a degree from parts of the league just because of how much his second contract, because of how much money he got. Yeah, and that really jump-started and initiated the lockout because a lot of the leagues felt like here was an example of a young, unproven player who basically held a small franchise hostage. And the funny thing about it is that the Timberwolves, they thought, hey, we're going to end these negotiations really quickly. We're just going to make him the best offer, and he's going to accept it. So they offered him $100 million as their first contract offer. And his agent at the time, Eric Fleischer, was like, they were blown away by that offer. But at the same time, (laughs) they're like, you know, we're not going to accept the first offer. So. So then they, it, I think the contract ended up being $127 million. And guys like Charles Barkley and Scotty Pippen, who had been in the league for forever and who had never gotten a contract close to that, were pretty much upset by that. And that kind of mirrors something that we're seeing now. But I think that today with the amount of people that you know cover the league and who do the financial part of it, I think that they're less blindsided by it. I mean, I know there's been some talk about that in terms of smoothing in the NBA, but I think that since the overall conversation has elevated a little bit, I think that it would it's different now than it was then. Yeah, it's definitely different. I mean, it's one of the reasons why the contracts are the way they are, why guys can't get raises by that far margin like, like KG got. And, and by the I mean, by now, nobody has made more money just salary-wise playing in the NBA than Kevin Garnett, and it's because he was uh, able to 
to sign in under those rules. And the funny thing is, so Kevin's contract was kind of the answer, or the rules that allowed him to get that contract was the answers to the rules from another negotiating period where rookies came into the league getting too much. Guys like Glenn Robinson and other guys got like $60 million contracts before they had even played an NBA game. So the league looked to correct that by, by bringing in the rookie skill contract. But in doing so, it allowed guys to make just giant leaps in their second contract. Did you see any common threads besides the ones that we talked about a little bit before with the guys that I guess you could call them disappointments in the league? Was it for you, was it mostly a kind of a mentality thing and just how they approached the league or was it disparate for a lot of them? It was a it was a combination. I mean, the mentality thing, I think, was a big part. Another thing was the organization they went to and whether that organization was going to be nurturing and kind of know what they were getting themselves into. I think the Trailblazers did a good job with Jermaine O'Neal, and they brought him along pretty slowly. It was Jermaine's first time, for the most part, out of South Carolina going to Portland, and he basically sat and matured for four years in Portland. And, you know, unfortunately for the Trailblazers, Unfortunately for the Trailblazers, by the time he was fully ready to contribute, he, he got traded and really blossomed in Indiana. Um, you contrast that with some other organizations that weren't ready for uh, these kids and, and kind of didn't put any special policies or anything in place. And, you know, the coaches, they, they don't have time to develop these kids for the most part. They're not going to be around three, four years from now when the kids are ready to contribute. So they're there's really no reason for them to even invest that time that's needed in, in kind of getting these guys to blossom. And as you, as you said, which was true with Jermaine O'Neal and was also true with Tracy McGrady, in Tracy McGrady's case, the coaches also did a nice job of, you know, making sure that he he was getting better and getting the time, but improving over time. And then, boom, he, he uses that development and goes to Orlando and makes a ton of money. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I could see why the coaches would be wary and cautious because, Tracy McGrady and Vince Carter were on that Raptors team, and they still couldn't save uh, Butch Carter's job. And Tracy is very, very grateful for how uh, how Butch brought him along because Butch really wanted to bridge what would be his first NBA season and make it into almost something to replicate like a college season. He didn't want Tracy to go through too many minutes or too many games. He wanted to just bring him along very, very slowly, and he did that. Yeah, and it seems like for the most part, you know, other than the, the you know the freaks of the freaks, the LeBrons and the Kobe's, that that worked really well. And I was really, I really liked the story of how Indiana handled Al Harrington, which was another one of those you know challenging circumstances. But he had veteran leadership, and I think that really helped helped him make his way through those tough early years. Yeah, so Al basically lived with uh, Antonio Davis for his first season in the NBA, and. He was just like a teenage son for Antonio and his wife where Al had chores and had a curfew and had to babysit Antonio's twin kids. And he drove Antonio to practice and Antonio really looked after him. The ironic thing in that regard is that a couple of years later, the, the Pacers traded Antonio to the Raptors for the pick that allowed Indiana to draft Jonathan Bender, <laughs> another high school kid, straight to the NBA. And... You know, that kind of a structure also, sometimes that doesn't even come from the team, though in that in that case, I think that the, the team might have facilitated a little bit. But you you have to be in the right place to really do that because it is a different process, but the idea would have to be that cer- some of those guys, and of course some of them it's true, are worth it. Yeah, and, you know, the thing is you you never really know until a few years later. And it's, it's always a game of what if, like, 
what would have happened if this guy would have went to this coach with this organization at that time? Could his career have ended better? What if LeBron James didn't have Paul Silas as his first NBA coach? What if he had, you know, somebody in, in Sacramento or, or just, I mean, there's so many what ifs and what could have happened. So I think one of the threads that you can't really discount that you know, like this, what helped make a guy success is whether he came in with that maturity and was able to look at the NBA as, as a means and not necessarily the end. And also, yeah, with that, I think, and this is just broadly true, especially with how rookie, how rookie contracts are, you know, they're deflated right now because of the scale that some of the players who it worked out for were guys who fell a little bit, not if they fell out of the first round, because then you get into those kind of issues. I think that Corleone Young had one of those issues. But if you fell a little bit, even like Kobe did, you could get into teams that were a little bit further along and then weren't putting as much pressure on the guys. Yeah, and I think any of the teams who, who saw these guys as immediate saviors, say other than LeBron James with the Cleveland Cavaliers, were set up to be let down because it was, too hard for the majority of these guys just jump in and, and contribute immediately into the NBA, even Kevin Garnett. Uh, you, you mentioned what ifs, and one of the questions I was going to ask you was when you were preparing this, and there are a lot of you know interesting th- things that almost happened and things like that, were there any that struck out to you as being like the most intellectually interesting about a possibility that didn't end up happening? Uh, well, Isaiah Thomas contemplated drafting Kevin Garnett, and he probably would have had Garnett slipped to him in that draft. And Isaiah, one of his high school teammates, was on KG's high school coaching staff. So Isaiah would check in with him every once in a while to see how Kevin was doing. So Isaiah had the biggest book on on Kevin. And at the time, Isaiah was uh, the president of the Toronto Raptors, and he had already put up sort of like a plan in place to get Kevin acclimated to professionalism and into the NBA where he was going to have Kevin basically living with the with the host family and he was going to regulate how many away games Kevin traveled to and how much he, he actually traveled with the team. And I think if that would have happened, that sort of uh, ex- experiment would have been fascinating to, to see how Kevin would have reacted and how Isaiah would have went about implementing it. And if it would have been successful early enough, maybe that could have provided a more reliable template for the teams that ended up going in a lot of different directions with these young guys. Exactly. In working on this, and of course your experience long before that, do you have a personal opinion on what the you know what the age limit should be like? If you were the the czar of the NBA, what you personally think would be best? I mean, it's definitely not a not a black and white issue. There's definitely a lot of gray involved with it. I think I come into the ledger of I would like to see a baseball type rule where guys are allowed to jump from high school if they're that talented and that impressive and mentally ready for it. And if they do decide to go to college, I would want them to stay at least two years. And that way, they're a lot closer to getting their college degrees. Because right now, you you can't even say it's one and done. It's just a few months and done. And then if you look at Ben Simmons this year, you ask yourself, who did this situation really help? Because it didn't help him. It's not like he's going to be a chemist next year. He's going to be an NBA player. So why not let him get on that track as fast as possible? And in that fashion... It'll help out the NBA because the NBA will be able to to market him better. But I don't think we're going to see a rule like that because the NBA wants to be able to have more finished products entering the league because they are about to invest multi-million dollars into these guys. So they want to be able to make solid guesses instead of just being able to 
see these guys against high school players and kind of have to project where they're going to end up four or five years later. What I'm hopeful of is actually something that parallels that, because what you would want to have in an ideal system, if you went to something like a, like the baseball rule, would be to have a more understanding college system. And so what I mean by that is basically now, now if a guy gets, go, let's say he goes to high, he goes, if he went pro from high school and he washed out for whatever reason, whether that be that he went undrafted or he, you know, played, let's say for a little bit and got cut, because of the amateurism rules, he can't go to the the NCAA, and the D League isn't a perfect situation for that. You know, maybe he could go to Europe. If college was a little bit more flexible with that, it would provide a safety net that I think would help would help the NBA be more okay with going to that kind of a system. Because then, let's say they did that, and either whether they were draft eligible again or whatever, then you could create a system where colleges would be getting guys for a more secure term. And the amateurism part of it, I think, at least to me, is such a silly reason to prevent this whole system from working. Yeah, I agree. And right now, the NBA and NCAA are really acting independent of one another. There's this whole misideology of amateurism with the NCAA. And, you know, even when I talked to David Stern for this, he said that he had tried to talk to the NCAA about getting the, the best NBA prospects insured and that the NBA would pay for it. And then the NCAA came back to him that we can't do this just for some basketball players. If you guys are going to do this, and you have to do it with all of the NCAA athletes or something like that. So, I mean, they're really acting independent. I, I think the rule as it is right now, it, it could be the most fairest rule because everybody hates it. Uh, the, NBA, the NBA wants to make it two years, and the NCAA hates the one-and-done system. And college or high school kids want to be able to, to make that jump. So, I mean, I, I think it's definitely going to change, and I wouldn't be surprised if the NBA one day makes it two years instead of just one. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either, and I also wouldn't be surprised if, I, and I liked this kind of an epilogue to the book that you talked about, Brandon Jennings and Jeremy Tyler, who are kind of two of the players who went on the new version of that track, which is that they didn't go to college, but they played professionally, and how that has that brings different challenges than what, let's say, the high school guys did. Yeah, and... You know, I remember as it was happening, because I was at the New York Times, and they had done a lot of stories on Brandon Jennings, and uh, Pete Thamel, one of their reporters, went out to visit him in Italy. And I remember thinking that this was going to be a thing, and that more kids were going were gonna to do this in the future. But I think what ended up happening is that uh, transitioning to professionalism out of high school is, is tough enough as is, and then just doing it in a whole different culture, language, overseas, all of that, adding that to the mix is, is just too extreme for a lot of people. Well, and as Sonny Vaccaro said, you know, it, it's it can be a personal thing, you know, the way that you have to give support and the way you have to advise these players. You know, they're all snowflakes. They're all going to handle that kind of a stress differently. Yeah, and I think, it again, it's the whole maturity and mentality factor where somebody like Brandon Jennings had it, and he was also aided by the fact that his mother and his brother went with him to Italy and then on the flip side of things, somebody like Jeremy Tyler had really nobody go with him and was just kind of the cautionary tale for what could go wrong if, if guys weren't ready to, to face all those challenges. So uh, last question, at least until I open it up to you a little bit, is what for you was different about this process as opposed to the, to the excellent pieces that you do that are more on a single player? Uh, it was just a lot longer, a lot more uh, work to do. I try to look at it like... It was 24, I think it was 24 chapters, 24 
long form stories and I just try to keep up with the pace that I did for Grantland and, and, and do it. I mean, it was just a lot more work just over and over again, but I was happy with the final product. Would you compare the experience? Like, was it, so you said it was like 24 chapters. Did it take even longer than 24 times longer? Was it to, to weave everything together? Yeah. Well, that was the toughest part was figuring out a way to structure it because it was, a lot of people and a lot of different stories. So I try to keep the NBA and how the NBA matured and evolved as kind of the continuing thread throughout the book. So I, I just tried to do as many, as many interviews as I could and get those out the way because I knew I was going to try to talk to as many people as possible, coaches, family, players, executives, and then try to figure out that, that structure. And once I got that down, then, yeah, then it was time to get going. And I mean, it, I think the writing process took a couple of years. The reporting process was probably about a year. So, yeah, I was just trying to meet deadlines with it and just trying to knock it out. Is there anything else that you want to share, either a story or just a part of the process? I do not know if I would have uh, been so eager to do it if I would have known how much work was involved at the beginning. But <laughs> it's really, really gratifying, and it's been uh, very, very humbling to see the reaction and, and how much uh, Shea Serrano has been on his horn trumping the book on on Twitter. This this part has been a lot of fun. Well, it's fantastic and you should be incredibly proud of it. I really appreciate that. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Anytime. Thanks again to Jonathan Abrams for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent new book, Boys Among Men, and I highly recommend it. I, I wouldn't say that just because he came on. I read it, I loved it, and asked him to come on after that. It was, It's an absolutely spectacular look, and what I was so impressed with, among other things, is how much he got out of players that have been in the public eye for a long time, you know, players like Kobe and LeBron and Garnett, who I've followed their careers pretty closely and who all three of them I covered for the last seven years as I've covered the NBA. And to be able to learn more about them, especially with their early part of their careers, was something that I really enjoyed and that was a nice piece to add to the mosaic that is their professional public lives. And I thought it did a really nice job of putting all of that together. You can follow Mr. Abrams on Twitter, at JPD Abrams, so that's A-B-R-A-M-S. I recommend that as well, and I'm so thrilled for success. He's the, It sounds like the book is doing very well, and it should because it's worth it, and it's fun. It's great to have somebody like Shea Sharano who is doing a really nice job promoting it and getting his supporters out there, and it's nice to see the, the Grantlanders do that for each other because this is an industry. I like to think of it as more supportive than competitive because... Anybody doing well is great for all of us, especially when it's somebody who who's a really good guy. I've, I've no, I only know Abrams a little bit, but I've really enjoyed the conversations we've had. And he's, of course, excellent at his work. And when you're talking about a book, that's what's more important. So I'm really thrilled that he came on. It's pretty amazing to me that Abrams and Lee Jenkins, who are two of my favorites, bar none, in this business or in anything as a writer, were both have both come on the podcast in this calendar year, you know, in the last couple months, and it's thrilling to talk with them about their process, especially with Abrams, because it's an issue that I, that resonates with me. I was, I'm the same, same high school class as LeBron James, he's a couple months older than I am, and being able to follow his path was illuminating for me just because it was so different, of course, than, than what I was doing. And to see somebody who was that talented at, you know, 16, 17, 18, and then became a star and absolutely delivered on it was, was great. You know, it was, it was affirmational, I guess you could call it with that sense. And so then now, of course, being able to cover him and everything else is a surreal experience. Let's say that even though it's weird to hear somebody your age talked about as being 
post prime and being, you know, a veteran and things like that. Cause it, there's nothing that makes you feel old quite like that. And when he retires, I'm sure that'll be hard, but you know, those are the types of things that we deal with. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You know, I'm going to keep rolling on with, with good content, working on a guest calendar and trying to balance out a lot of different things because I want to do bring back some of the eliminated, which is talking about the teams that are, you know, out of the picture. Cause as those of you who follow my writing know, I get very focused on the off season and what's coming up and wrote that piece for the sport news about how there's a billion dollars to spend and off season previews eventually for all 30 NBA teams. So we'll hit those teams, but I focus on the podcast on when, you know, more when they're eliminated. So it'll actually kind of run in reverse of the pieces that I'm doing because those were going from best to worst so that you can kind of consider them at different times, which is fun to have those go differently. Cause of course I'm thinking about everybody at the same time. So that'll be running kind of in conjunction with, of course, talking about the more relevant teams, the playoff picture, the NBA draft, all of that kind of stuff until, you know, it'll run full steam until July 1st because it all runs together. That's part of why covering the NBA, following the NBA is so much fun is that you're having to deal with all of these things at the same time. And until we get to late July, early August, you don't really get a break. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any insight, good, bad, or indifferent, you can reach out to me on Twitter, Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also reach out to me by email, NBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. You can also uh, check out my Facebook page, which is also NBA. Puts everything that I write and put out, podcast form, whatever, on the same place. So if you, because it's harder to follow other places. And of course, Twitter, there's a bunch of other things going on. So that's a good way to do that. And also I put out a weekly email digest and the link for that is on my Facebook page and it's on my Twitter page. I usually do it on Thursdays or Fridays, depending on availability. So again, thank you so much for listening. It's going to be, continue to be a very exciting time for this podcast. And of course, if you like it and you like Dunked On, subscribe and download every episode, whether you listen to it or not, though I hope you listen and give us a review if if you like it. This podcast, Nate's, because that is something we take to advertisers. I assume it's part of the reason SeatGeek was interested. And that's the final thing that you can do is you can download the SeatGeek app. You can input the promo code REALGM. That will let them know that you came from us and you get a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So it really does help you and it helps me and it helps SeatGeek, which is a great product. So Hope you do all that. Take care and make it a great day. One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better. 
One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now, Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.